Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 18 of I Wish You Were Dead, a podcast about things that used to be alive. My name is Mike. That is Gavin. Gavin, I believe some congratulations are in order. Oh, why, thank you. <laughs> so for everybody, uh, Gavin is far too modest to, uh, to bring it up on his own, <laughs> so I'm going to bring it up a mere 20 seconds into this podcast or however deep we are. Um, but Gavin, we uh, we talked about your master's thesis a couple episodes ago, and I believe we you sure had to did. defend that uh, last week. How'd that go? Uh, well, I passed. So I am, <laughs> even though I am not quite graduated yet, um, I just have, you know, regular classwork for a couple of classes that I'm taking uh, left to do. And then my committee basically gave me some uh, edits to make that I just have to, you know, change around some a couple of things, add a couple of things uh, into my thesis. And then send it back to them for their approval. And then I am a master of science. Congratulations, buddy. That is, uh, that's exciting. And that's a lot of hard work that you put in. We've talked about it a whole bunch on the show. So that is, you know, you should definitely be proud of yourself for everything you've been able to do. Why, thank you. And it actually kind of is convenient for this episode's topic. Absolutely. But before we get into all of that good stuff, uh, a couple announcements before we get into it, before we even get into the uh, this week in science. Uh, first, a big thank you uh, to the Instagram account Cactus Qual Creations uh, for shouting us out sort of on their Instagram story. It's a wildlife uh, type uh, Instagram account. I don't Instagram, so I, I don't know. But uh, they, you know, posted something about us on their story. And uh, if anybody came to us from from seeing that on the story, thank you. And we'll make sure that we link to them down in uh, our podcast description. Uh, what is the uh, what was the name of the Instagram account? One more time, Cactus Qual. So the word Cactus Q U O L L Creations. Cactus Qual Creations, perfect. So we will make sure we link them. Thank you very much for yeah. uh, for giving us that shout out. And if uh, there's anybody else out there that wants to shout us out, please, you do not need our permission. <laughs> My name is Mike. That is Gavin. Just tell people to listen to the show. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, some and, other real quick uh, announcements. Uh, as uh, some sometimes uh, we forget to mention it until the end, like like bad hosts. But uh, if you would like to submit a topic for us to talk about on the episode, uh, or if you would like to come on as a guest, if you happen to be a interesting person in the realms of you know biology or geology, we'd love to have you on. Uh, so feel free to fill out those forms uh, down in the show notes as well. Yeah, we are definitely looking to uh, do kind of new and interesting things with the podcast. And so that includes, you know, branching out and, uh, you know, maybe expanding this into a, uh, um, you know, three-way podcast every now and again. So having some special guests on. So if you are out there, if you've got something you want us to cover, or if you, you know, know what you're talking about, it'd be nice to have a second person on this podcast that maybe knows what they're talking about. <laughs> um, so yeah, every all of that will be down in the show notes. Uh, and this has been—I've got to say—if we're—if uh, we're talking about announcements and everything and ways to grow the podcast, this has been a lot of fun. This is definitely—I knew this was going to be a fun thing to do, just knowing, uh, you know, how much I enjoy talking with you. Mm -hmm. But just the uh, the amount I've learned and the you know just the opportunity to talk to you once a week, this has definitely been a a fun podcast. So if uh, if you're looking to join on, you know, it's a good time. You won't regret it. Yeah, absolutely. We love we love talking to new interesting people. Absolutely. So do we have any other announcements or are we ready for this week in science? I don't think so. So let's let's talk about this one. So if you had to guess, this one I will say could, considering uh, that they're usually relatively recent, this one's actually relatively old compared to the ones that we usually talk about. So if you had to guess what year, what, what year would you guess? Uh, relatively old compared to what we normally do. So I'm going to say 2014. Not super old, but older. I'm saying 2014. Swing and a mess. Oh my gosh. 2005. Wow. Yeah. Okay. This is, is I think this is the oldest one we talked about. That this is the oldest one by like I think at least a decade. Probably pretty close, yeah. Yeah. What do we got? Um but so the headline is from actually today. It's not often that we get some uh from a Wednesday, but Wednesday for the, uh April fourteenth, two thousand five. Uh it, and the headline is New Layer of Earth Detected. Which is is why I picked it because I don't remember hearing this, but also at the time I was nine. So, <laughs> um, so let's see. So it goes, uh, Dr. Christine Thomas, a geophysicist from the university of Liverpool, uh, in the UK 
announced that she had discovered a previously undetected seismic layer resting very near the Earth's core, nearly 2,900 kilometers, or roughly 1,800 miles in American. I know it's not actually American units, but it's, it's just fun to say because we're Americans suck and don't use the metric system. Anyway, uh, below the Earth's surface. This discovery, which was achieved through the use of modern modeling technologies, measured the flow of seismic waves as they traveled through the Earth and enabled the measurement of the mantle's internal temperature at a much deeper, deeper level than previously possible. Experts say that the discovery will undoubtedly allow future temper, or, uh, temperature measurements of the Earth's core to be undertaken with much more precision, information that is vital for any member of Earth-based sciences. So wait, let me, you said they discovered a new layer and then you read that yes. and it sounded like they were just measuring the temperature of the mantle a lot more closely. So what's the, so yeah, help me out. I had always learned that there are four main layers to the earth's, well, to the earth. There's that's the, the crust. That's the die. Yeah. Right. There's the crust, which if, if it's often compared to like an apple. So if you think of like right. the, the crust is like the skin of an apple relative to like the actual thickness of the earth, extremely thin. Then you have the mantle, which is the, the best word, the, the most accurate word used to describe it is plastic. It is not meaning that it is not liquid, but it is very elastic and flexible and flows mm -hmm. because once you get to things at this large of a scale, solid there there is much blurrier of a line between like solid and liquid right so even though it is solid rock it flows similar to a very very viscous liquid like a cold syrup almost um but yeah so there's the crust the mantle then there's the outer core which is liquid that that is actually liquid and then there is the inner core which is solid because uh well pressure, it is right? hotter than the outer core, there's it is under so much pressure that the pressure does not let the atoms move into an arrangement that is liquid. Okay, so we've got those main four layers, and then mm -hmm. what was discovered in this? It seems like uh, there may, might be some kind of thin layer sort of in between the mantle and the outer core. Huh, okay. Well, and so obviously we've never drilled that far or even close um, yet. It, it is physically impossible so far. I, <laughs> if, if we, if we're able to even make it into the mantle in my lifetime, I will be astounded. Not because it's all that far down, but just the pressure and heat like melts the equipment that we use. Right. Even at like the top of the mantle. Yeah, it won't be easy. Yeah. Um, but the reason that we know this is the case um, is that mo mostly through just our understanding of physics, realistically, because uh, we, we know that the outer core is liquid because uh, there are two different kinds of... Um, waves like energy waves produced by earthquakes uh they're called s waves and p waves mm -hmm. and i i should know this but i can't uh think of which ones which uh one of i think the s waves cannot go through liquid and so it's like we we don't get readings of the earthquake directly on the opposite side of the world from where the earthquake happened so the liquid acts as like a block to those s waves so that's, that's sort of how we know that the, at least some part of the middle of the earth is liquid. Then we know the mantle is uh, sort of plastic and not really liquid because uh, they travel, the P waves and S waves sort of travel differently. And so because of that, there is, uh, you know, they react differently to different densities throughout the earth's uh, core. And, and, you know, the inside of the earth. So because of that, we sort of theoretically know that, uh, you know, the mantle is plastic. Yeah, I mean, so 
I, I don't know. The fact that we still can tell what's going on underneath all these layers is still mind blowing to me. Like we, um, you know, everybody always talks about space and for the record space, yep. absolutely awesome. Mm-hmm. But like the stuff that happens on earth that like, you know, we can only indirectly observe in some ways is also just like fascinating. Yeah, definitely. And honestly, so, okay. Because it is all theoretical. Um, I have, I actually saw a TikTok about it no, and okay to be fair I, I i don't i don't have a tiktok i saw somebody share a tiktok on twitter uh <laughs> but somebody uh basically being like well we've never been there so like how do we know that the earth's not like hollow and i was like please please read um <laughs> <laughs> and it's like like i don't think it's necessarily that person's fault for being misinformed. Um, but like, if you're going to be confident enough to say things like that on your social media, please read a little bit beforehand. Um, yeah, that'd be nice. This reminds me of when I have every now and again, I'll have a student that's be, that'll be like, so how do we actually know? Like the past happened and like, oh, what we've got, <laughs> I've got to have this conversation now. Yeah. It's like, well, how, well, and that gets real weird. Like U.S. history is pretty straightforward. It gets real weird around stuff like um, the Peloponnesian War, because like the the only evidence that we really have of that like is, is pretty much like Greek myths and stuff. Right, or even weirder with like the Trojan War, where everybody thought that it was fake, and now there are some people that are like, maybe it's not fake. Like it's yeah, right. Like it, it's it definitely gets you know into those hairy. In those areas, mm-hmm. I also have had students. In fact, I had a former student just uh, this week uh, send me an email um, saying hi, saying blah blah blah, and then also sending me photographic evidence that the Earth is not um, round nor flat, but in fact dinosaur shaped. Ah, cool. Um, yeah. So this is yeah, this is the kind of thing that we're all dealing with. See, one of my favorite things to do with that kind of th- like obviously they were memeing, but um, oh, of course. But so people who legitimately think the, the Earth is flat. Um, a, I don't remember what it's called, but quick side tangent. There's an excellent, um, behind the curve on a documentary on Netflix. Is that what you're talking about? That's the one. Okay. Yes. It's excellent. If you've not seen it, please go watch it. It is so good. Um, it basically follows a group of flat earthers and like, to my knowledge, the people being documented don't know that like the documentarian is not a flat earther. <laughs> because like i mean it kind of I mean, just they, seems like they're following them around to just document how s- silly they are but they talk I mean, to the to the camera as if like very very freely <laughs> yeah i mean they you know the one of the questions i always had was are these just really elaborate trolls or do they actually believe what they're saying right i think a lot of them believe those what people saying. believe those people absolutely yep. believe at least those people in the documentary but anyway side tangent uh aside yes um so I always like to come at like conspiracy theorists with an even crazier one. Whereas like <laughs> when people come at me with like the earth's flat and I'm like, nah, the earth's a cylinder. The part that you think is flat. That's just the top. Where's the rest of us? Or where's the rest of it? What aren't they telling us? And it's like the, what aren't they telling us line is the one that really gets them. Um, mm-hmm. And then also people who are, don't believe in like the moon landing. I'm like, you believe in the moon? And then they're oh, yeah. just, I mean, typically it's people who don't, don't believe, if they don't believe in the, the moon landing, uh, I'd say there's not a not insignificant chance that they're also a flat earther who don't believe in the moon. <laughs> so it's like, those lines get a little blurred, but anyway, moral of the story, please troll conspiracy theorists. It's very fun. It can, as long as it's done uh, safely, it can be yes. a good time. On occasion, things get, uh, you know, things get a little hairy. Yeah. Um, anyways. We should probably get to um, the actual topic <laughs> of what it is that we're talking about today, which um, we alluded to it earlier, but we actually don't have a written out script for this one. And it's nope, sort of is... in, uh, in, it's kind of an honor or in celebration of, um, of Gavin being able to successfully defend his thesis. And so kind of the whole point of today's episode is we were just going to talk about um, mostly Gavin's, but um, this is one of the few episodes I have something to contribute. We're going to kind of talk about our experience <laughs> In uh, in grad school, which I think will be a uh, a really fun opportunity for the, the both of us to 
you know, just talk about our experiences and possibly give some advice to anybody that's listening. Yeah, absolutely. This is very much more of like a, a talking head type video. And also, Mike, don't sell yourself short. You are you are you always have something to, to contribute. You're great. I I appreciate you uh, you you humor me with uh, whatever innuendo I bring to our podcast. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just wanted to go through sort of the entire grad school process, sort of just from beginning to end. Uh, for anyone who you know, maybe you're not in grad school yet, or maybe maybe you're in your first couple of years of you know your undergraduate degree, and you are just want maybe extra opinions uh, about how grad school works, or maybe you've already done your your bachelor's and are thinking about going back. Uh, that's also very common as well. Uh, but yeah, just talk about grad school from beginning to end, at least for a master's degree, which is all you or I have, so we can't yes. speak to anything beyond that, at least not personally. Right. And so, uh, obviously like, like I, you know, mentioned at the beginning, I have a, I, well, will have a master of science degree. So an MS degree in paleontology. Um, and you know, there's all sorts of different degrees, you know, there's, you know, master of engineering, master of arts. Um, so yours is an MA, right? Uh, it was, it was kind of an odd, it was MST was the, uh, it was master okay. of science and teaching was, I uh, believe the official. Yeah. Which I never got too deep into any of the, uh, the right, acronyms, yeah. but yeah, it's a, uh, that's what my master's degree is in. Cool. So, uh, I guess let's just sort of start at the beginning. So, um, for me it, and I know this is definitely different for, for teaching <laughs> than it is for, uh, me, <laughs> but for broadly in the sciences you apply to grad school less for the actual school like that absolutely does play a factor but you apply mostly to be working with a particular person um that's less true for a master's than it is for a phd um but before i even applied to any of the schools that i applied to i ended up applying to four uh schools for for a master's um I, I sent emails to the the people that I would be working with, basically being like, hey, I think the research that you do is really interesting. Um, do you have an open space, you know, in your lab? You know, basically, are you taking students uh, for, you know, this upcoming year? And then based on their responses, I would apply, basically have a, a you know, quick chat, whether it's, uh, I think it was exclusively through email. Um, but that, again, just varies wildly depending on, you know, the person that you're trying to work with, some of them will really insist on uh, having like some kind of phone call or something or for a PhD program that might even fly you out to wherever the school is to have like, you know, a tour of their facilities or something. Um, but yeah, so you send them an email, sort of just chat with them. And then once they sort of give you their blessing that, yes, I will, I will take you in my lab if you get into the school then you apply to the school and fill out all the normal application type things. So it sounds like with, you know, kind of with your program in the sciences, you are, you know, you're applying to be with people more than anything else. And the actual institution is, you know, I don't, I don't want to say it's not important, but it's definitely secondary to the people you're going to be working with and working mm -hmm. under. Yeah, definitely. So the four schools that I applied to were obviously the one that I go to now, the South Dakota School of Mines and Technology. Uh, I applied to uh, Cal State Fresno in, obviously, Fresno, California. Um, I applied to Fort Hayes State University in Hayes, Kansas, and uh, to University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. And so I got into all of them except for University of Michigan, who I never heard back from. Like, not even like a, hey, you didn't get in. I just literally heard nothing. So that made me sad. As it should. Like, if I didn't get in, at least tell me. Right, exactly. Same thing with, like, job interviews. Like, I would like to know yeah. to not be sitting by the phone. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, so the big difference, I think, for me... Um, well, actually, what, before I talk about where, like, why I decided to come here instead of the other two that I got into, what was the application process like for you as a teacher? Yeah, a little different for me. Uh, so... Um, I don't believe I've told this story before, um, and I will I will leave out some of the more funny bits. But I sure. graduated with a political science degree, 
mm-hmm. um, from Syracuse University. And I did not know I wanted to be a teacher. You know, a lot of the people you talk to um, that go into education, they've known they wanted to be a teacher since they met their you know, kindergarten teacher. And that's all they ever mm-hmm. wanted to do. Yeah. Um, I didn't figure that out until I was a junior or senior in college. Um, and by that point, I was already getting my political science degree. Fortunately, with um, a lot of places, uh, New York State in particular, what you can do is you can take you know, an undergrad degree you have in something else in some other field, and you can get a master's program that will get you certified to teach, get you a master's degree, and get you basically all set to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and at least in New York State, you need a master's degree within five years of you starting teaching anyways. So it's right. one of those things where you're going to need to get a master's degree, and this is kind of a good way to get it out of the way before you actually begin your career. Mm-hmm. And so the process for me was um, basically looking around and see which places had that program, trying to figure out, okay, where is it? Because not every place that offers education is going to have a program like this. Right. Yeah. Um, and one of the first places I talked to was SUNY Oswego, which is actually mm-hmm. where you and I met. Right. And uh, it was, if I'm being completely honest with you, the main reason why I picked it there, number one, I've got good memories of the, uh, of the time <laughs> that you and I spent together. But also number two, and I believe they have since gotten rid of this rule, but SUNY Oswego did not require me to take the GRE before going into the master's Ooh. program. And so I just had to, yeah, I just had to apply. And it was, you know, it was close to my house uh, or close enough mm-hmm. to my house and everything else where the situation was just able to work. It wasn't a situation where I was looking to see who was working there. It wasn't a situation to see um you know what the you know the strengths of any given mm-hmm. progressor or what the strengths of the program were it was basically just will this program get me where i want to go and that program um it was one of the fastest programs of its kind um mm-hmm. in just over a year you get certified to teach instead of two years which is the typical time for this kind of thing right um and you know i didn't have to take the gre it was pretty close to home it ended up working out pretty well kind of in all respects for me. And that's kind of how I wound up at SUNY Oswego. Um, and 15 months after I started there, I graduated with my, uh, you know, my MST, uh, master's in social studies education. And that is, you know, that's how I wound up there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't think I've, I don't think you've ever really talked about that with me. Like even, you know, obviously off, off podcast. So that's interesting. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you remember, um, getting Snapchats from me, the, uh, mm-hmm. my first summer of grad school where I was just dying in work. Cause I didn't I do, know. I do remember that. On. Yes. Yeah, I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know how to teach. I didn't know what all these new words meant. Um, <laughs> and so it was, you know, it was, you know, that was a, uh, you know, a rough beginning because it really is a crash course. If this is the kind of thing yeah. you're looking to do, it is, you know, okay, you know, you are going to be immersed in this and you're not going to know what's going on for the first, uh, for several months. At one point I was talking to one of my professors um, and I had a question on an assignment or something. And I go to her and I'm like, hey, Dr. R, I don't understand. And before I could finish that sentence, she goes, you're not supposed to understand. And I'm like, no, like um, I have a question on this thing. And she's like, no, like you're not going to understand anything here for like the first nine months. And then eventually you'll get it. Um, and, you know, as odd as that might sound, she was 100% correct. You know, eventually, you know, between nine to 12 months in that program, all of a sudden you kind of start, you know, you've been immersed in it for long enough at that point. You kind of start understanding the terms and everything else. So that's kind of how, yeah, that's how I wound up with my master's degree. Interesting. Um, And so since you talked a a little bit about it and it completely skipped my mind because I I blocked it out on purpose. Um, But (laughs) you mentioned a couple times the GRE. Yes. And so off the top of my head, I don't actually remember what that stands for. Uh, obviously it stands for like graduate something examination, but I'm, I'm actually going to look that up right now. Graduate record examinations. Is, is that what that is? Yeah. Apparently that's what it is. And okay. my understanding was that it was like a SAT for grad school, but you know, I didn't take it. So do you want to help me out with that? Yeah. So, um, that's more or less it, uh, it is an SAT for grad school. And it's actually interesting that you said that you don't, that you think SUNY Oswego might now require the GRE for that program when they didn't before. Yeah. I might've like ruined that for everybody else. Well, and well, the reason I find that really interesting is because generally uh, the GRE is much less of a factor than it used to be. Um, similarly to, to the SAT Good. and the ACT and that kind of stuff, because um, right. I think most places are coming to realize that like the results of one single test probably 
aren't that accurate in determining how good of a student you are. Just my opinion. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, <laughs> well, right. It's both that and also the the inequities in, you know, in how people do on that test, particularly the SAT um, yeah. and ACT in high school. But, you know, even still, you know, there are, you know, you are measuring different things than just how smart someone is or how ready they are for a program mm -hmm. in a single test like that. However, many of you are going to have to take it if you wind yes. up wanting to go to grad school. So I can't speak much to this, but Gavin, do you, I assume you took it. Do you want to talk a little bit about just kind of what that test entailed, how you prepared for it, uh, you know, just how, you know, how hard mm -hmm. was it? Yeah. So basically there are, I think, five parts, one of which is not graded, but they don't tell you which one it is. One of them is basically for them to test questions on for future exams. Hmm. But they don't tell you. So you'll get, um, I think there's one, God, I, like I said, I kind of blocked it out because I did not enjoy it. And it's like, in general, I consider myself a pretty good test taker. Um, but again, it was just like, you know, even though I had been told that it is less of a, a factor than it used to be that, you know, that only helps so much. Uh, <laughs> but, right. Yeah. So from what I remember, it was basically two like sort of general knowledge things that you should know if you have a bachelor's degree in general. And then two math, <laughs> <laughs> which seems dumb to me. Because it's like, okay, if you have a degree in English, why do you have two math sections? Um, and also, like, if you're going to grad school again, for something I, that's I not might, math, you think it'd be more specialized. And there are specialized editions. So there's the general GRE test, and then there are sort of specific GRE tests. And mm -hmm. to my knowledge, the only ones for that are biology, chemistry. There used to be one in geology, but there's not anymore. Uh, literature in English, math, physics, psychology. So I believe those are the only sort of extra add-on type ones. Uh, yeah, there's the GRE general test, which is general. And then subject tests are the name of the more specific ones. Uh, but yeah, the I'm, I'm trying to find easily somewhere online right now what the, the parts are. But I remember that there are five parts, only four of which are graded. Um, it will take generally uh, about four hours of your day, which is really annoying because again, Ooh. not everyone can just sort of voluntarily go and, and take four hours out of a, out of a day. And Wikipedia tells me it costs $205 to take, which it sure does. And yeah. here's what they don't tell you. Um, oh. That does not include sending your scores to schools. <laughs> of course not. Of course not. Because you get to send uh, your scores to four schools immediately after you walk out. You don't get to see your results. You get to see rough results, like sort of estimated results, but you do not get to see your final scores. And you can send it to four schools for free right when you leave. Uh, you need to basically, and, and their system for searching for schools, because you don't just type in you know, if I wanted to send it to South Dakota School of Mines and Technology, you, it is, it is more difficult than it should be to just type in South Dakota School of Mines and click send score. But no, you need the school's like code that they use for the GRE, some of which are a little harder to find than others. So I wrote down the four schools that I wanted to send it to uh, beforehand on like a sticky note that I had to like leave with my phone and everything in like a locker before I actually went into like the test room. Uh, you, you can't have anything in your pocket, not like your wallet. You can't have like a watch, uh, no phone keys, whatever. All of it goes in like a little locker thing. Um, and then you walk out and there's like a little thing for you to like send your scores and you do that. You get four of them for free. After that, literally as soon as you walk out the door, if you want them, if you want to send your scores to any school, it costs twenty seven dollars Bob. I mean, you got to give credit to uh, to whoever comes up with these things. They're making a killing. They're very on people creative that don't have much money to spend. You. Yeah, right. 
Yeah, absolutely. Like these people, you know, if you're coming out of uh, undergrad, you don't have a whole lot of money to spend, and yet they're still squeezing every last cent out of you. Yeah. So, uh, so I mean, so we talked uh, about the GRE, and that is kind of your mm -hmm. entrance exam into um, into grad school. What is so? If we're talking about grad school itself, kind of what is in your field? What's the purpose of going to grad school? Why is an undergrad not good enough, or is an undergrad good enough? In some cases, it just wasn't right for you, or was it right for you? And this whole thing was a giant mistake. Like, what's the um, you know, how would you kind of evaluate how necessary a, uh, a grad degree is? It very much depends on your field. Um, for example, you know, I will speak to paleontology just because obviously that's what I do. Uh, but for paleontology, there are actually a wide variety of things that you can do. You know, most people sort of think of, oh, it's, it's the people who work at a university that go out into the desert in the summer and dig up dinosaurs. And that is only just the sort of very beginning of what a paleontologist is, you know? Um, for example, we have lots of people who uh, volunteer for us, but at, at some other places there are paid workers who do this, but they prepare fossils. So we have like a really nice preparation lab uh, at my school, meaning so like when we bring a fossil back from digging them up in the field, usually during the summer. Um, they still have a bunch of rock and gross stuff around them, but we want to get to like the actual bones. So we can look at it and study it and stuff, but we need, you know, people with time on their hands, which frequently professors don't have uh, to, you know, work on that specimen to be able to make it researchable by the professors. In some places, that is a paid position, and you can do that uh, generally with a bachelor's. Uh, or if, you know, you happen to, like, volunteer, if there's, you know, a museum with a preparation lab uh, that you volunteer at a lot in high school, sometimes they'll even take you right out of high school if you've been, like, volunteering with them for a while and, and know how to do it. Uh, so that is a really important job in paleontology that really often gets talked about a lot less than, you know, the more charismatic digging up dinosaurs. You say it's really important. Do they pay you commensurately with how important it is? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, just because in general, um, so for example, our preparator, you know, our, our main person who works on that, uh, she has a master's degree. And granted, I, I do not know how much she gets paid, but I do know that part of her pay comes from grants and stuff. So like, only part of her pay comes from the actual school. So I don't know how unique that is personally in the, in the industry. Um, from what I've gathered, it does not seem all that unique. Uh, <laughs> but uh, in general, you can do a lot of things in paleontology with, with a, just a bachelor's degree. And I don't mean to say like just a bachelor's degree. I've, I know plenty of people with bachelor's degrees that probably make more money than I will. Um, right, but it's not it's not necessarily uh, required to get many different jobs in in that field. It's required for some, but right. it is you know there are there are other ways to go about getting into you know having a career in this field. Yeah, so for me personally, um, up until probably about a year ago, very shortly after uh, lockdown started last spring, uh, I began to realize that. You know, my entire life I had known, I'm like, okay, I want to be a, you know, I want to do research as a profession. I want to get a PhD. I want to be a, a fake doctor, <laughs> you know, not a medical doctor, doctor. Uh, and I want to be at a university and I want to teach and do research. Uh, after seeing how little scientific literacy there is in the world uh, and, and COVID really making that painfully obvious, um, and also coming to realize how many people there are in paleontology doing that, uh, you know, going the, the PhD route. So there's way more people getting PhDs than PhD jobs open up per year. <laughs> of course. Right. Um, so I was like, I, I personally think that a, like I would be happy doing that. You know, I enjoy doing research. I enjoy the, the teaching that I've done so far. Um, but I think that my personal time would be better spent 
in an like an informal education type setting. Um, so mostly, um, given that I'm about to graduate, like anyone who's about to graduate, I've been applying to lots of jobs. And so a lot of them have been stuff like working at museums. Uh, generally, depending on what you're exactly doing with the museum, that can require anything from a bachelor's all the way up to a PhD if you're doing things like uh, like curating the collections, basically doing research and, and you know, organ maybe not so much organizing, but doing research on things in the collections. Um, generally, that requires a PhD. But uh, for most of the jobs that I've been applying to, like a collections manager, which is the person who sort of, you know, controls fossils coming in, fossils going out, like on loan or something. Um, the organization of the collections facility um, and also all the like regulations and things that go along with keeping fossils because there are many, many laws that you have to be knowledgeable about and, and follow. Um, generally, that requires a master's at, you know, most, most places. Um, and then also I've been applying to like community college teaching jobs just because while, like I said, I would enjoy doing research. I also just really enjoy talking and nerding out about science to people. Hence this podcast. Hence this podcast. Uh, And I feel like I'd have more of a personal impact on people in a smaller college setting like that. So that's the jobs that I've been applying for with a master's. Yeah. And so the, you know, kind of the field you wanted to go into, you know, you kind of needed to get a master's degree in order to, to go into the kind of work you're doing. Right. Um, is there, you know, now, is there any thought in your mind about continuing that education going for maybe a doctorate or, you know, some other degree, or are you done? Maybe eventually. It really. What purpose would that serve if you were to get your doctorate? Me right now, I think it would be more for myself than for my job, personally. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, the, the the teacher that I am ATA for right now, he worked at the uh, United States Geological Survey for a very long time uh, and then came to teach, you know, at my school a handful of years ago. And so even though he is, I'm trying to think if he he's at least in his late 50s. But he's, he's getting a PhD right now. Mm-hmm. And so I think he, he's doing he that said, for him. well, he says that like right now his title is lecturer. Um, and in order to become a like senior lecturer, he needs a PhD. So he's sort of doing it for like the job title, but also, you know, even once he becomes senior lecturer, by that point, he'll be in his early sixties. How much longer is he actually going to be teaching? Right. You know? So mm-hmm. I think I do. I do think he's mostly doing that for him, and so right, I could like, see myself doing that and going that route. But as mm-hmm. for, you know, me doing it for a job, uh, I, that's just that's just four to six years of my life that I don't want to spend doing that. Right to then wind up probably still being just criminally underpaid with exactly. whatever you wind up doing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so. Let's see. So we talked about the beginning of grad school. We talked a little bit about sort of the after of grad school. So mm-hmm. the during of grad school. So I get, well, we'll talk about mm-hmm. the immediate prior to grad school, and then we'll get into sort of what happens during grad school. So for me, um, how I decided to go here instead of the other two places that I had gotten into, uh, it was a combination of a couple things. So given that I'm from the Northeast, there are not too many schools around there that have really good uh, vertebrate paleontology, you know, no people studying that just because there are not many vertebrate fossils in the Northeast. Uh, It's all generally older, you know, stuff. So it's like any vertebrate fossils that are there are usually just like fish, um, which I don't personally find all that interesting. (laughs) So I sort of, and that's why all of my places that I applied to were kind of all over the place, you know, California, Kansas, South Dakota, Michigan. Um, so yeah, that's sort of why I applied to those places because they had people doing what I wanted to do. Why I accepted or ended up going to South Dakota school of mines was a combination of location and money. 
because <laughs> unlike many other master's or graduate school programs, uh, most sciences, at least core sciences, so that would be your geology, biology, chemistry, and physics, uh, generally have guaranteed money for going to that, that program. Whereas for you, I would assume that you did not get paid to be in grad school. Oh, that would be correct. Right. And I have some friends, um, you know, I have several friends who are actually doing like speech language pathology and they're working on a master's for that right now. They're definitely not getting paid. Um, right. So to my knowledge, it's pretty much only like the, the core sciences, maybe some social sciences as well. Um, but I, I feel like that would be much more rare uh, than getting paid in, in the core sciences. And the reason that is, is because we generally do one of two things once you are in grad school. You are a teacher's assistant or a TA, or you are a research assistant or an RA. And so either you're teaching a lab or in the case of some PhD programs, you're teaching an entire class while you're taking taking classes and doing your research yourself. Um, or uh, you are a research, research assistant, you know, doing research and getting paid for that. So those are sort of the two options. And... You know, out of the three places that I got into, uh, Fresno would have been probably my ideal location. However, they offered me, the only thing that they offered me for money was turning my out-of-state tuition into in-state tuition. <laughs> and so, so they gave you a discount code. They didn't actually give you any money. Right. And so the, the person that I had been talking to uh, that would have been my advisor said that they had some teaching assistant opportunities, but the, it wasn't guaranteed. And so I'm like, you can't expect me to move from New York to Fresno, California, a place that is generally very expensive to live in without a guaranteed paycheck. Like, I'm just, I'm just not going to do that. And nor should you. I mean, that's, you know, yeah, you're, that is putting yourself at unnecessary risk mm -hmm. for, you know, benefits that you could get anywhere else. Right. I shouldn't say anywhere else, but, you know, other places. Mm -hmm. Um. And then sort of on the opposite spectrum of, of that was the school in Kansas, Fort Hayes State University, uh, which offered me the most money uh, in that they give me a full tuition waiver. And also, I think, uh, you know, pretty generous stipend as well. However, it was in the middle of nowhere, Kansas. <laughs> uh, and they, to be fair, they have really cool things on campus. They have a great museum on campus. Uh the, the person who actually is the collections manager there, uh, she's excellent on Twitter. Her name is Ali Baumgartner, I think. Uh, but anyway, you can follow the the museum at, I think, FSHU Museum on Twitter. Uh, weird plug. I follow them on Twitter. They're great. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so uh, excellent resources there. But like the town itself, it was around 20-ish thousand people in rural Kansas. So like for rural Kansas, a decent sized city, but rural Kansas, not necessarily my scene personally. <laughs> yeah. I, I, there's, I mean, there's not too many people in rural Kansas, not many people seen. Mm -hmm. uh, so sort of the middle option between the two was South Dakota school of mines and technology in rapid city. Rapid city has a lot of cool things around it. Uh, the black Hills, you know, we've talked about them. They're really cool geologically and just nature-wise uh, as well. Um, lots of things around to do. It's a decent-sized city, around sixty-five to 70-ish thousand people. So the biggest city I have ever personally lived in, uh, as well as the, the money was not amazing, but enough to live. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that's, that's sort of why I chose here, personally. Um, I would have been happy working with any of those three, you know, advisors that I had been accepted by. Um, but I happen to choose here. And as we've talked about before, you know, my advisor turned out to be just an excellent human being. I love him. Uh, and so that that's why I ended up here as opposed to those other places. And, you, and, and so we've, yeah, oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, we've talked, you know, both of us, how we wound up at mm -hmm. our respective schools in different ways. So now, and we talked about what happens afterwards. Um, so let's, you know, let's get into, you know, whatever time we have left, what actually happens while you were in grad school, you know, outside of the specifics of classes mm -hmm. or anything, 
what, you know, what did grad school actually entail for you? Yeah. So, and this can also, as I'm sure you probably have guessed, or you can probably assume this varies wildly from school to school. So for me, um, there were three required classes, uh, and the rest I could sort of fill in, uh, well, as, as well as I think 12 credits of thesis, maybe nine credits of thesis, um, which is basically just like dedicated time for you to be doing your research. Uh, and then, so yeah, three required classes, I think nine credits of thesis. And then I think you just needed like 30 credits total or something to that effect. Uh, but yeah, so the required classes were one called paleobiology, uh, which is fairly straightforward. It's basically just studying extinct animals as if they were living animals. So just going through diversity and, and basically a biology class, but with a paleontology focus. Um, field paleontology, which I which we've talked about before. Um, and then uh, what it, my school is just called Geology 700, which is basically just introduction to grad school. <laughs> it's basically like, here's the library. Here's how to use our system that our library uses. Here, basically like introduction to grad school slash introduction to campus, you know, for folks who didn't do their bachelor's at that same school. Um, and those were, those were the only three that were required. However, because our department is relatively small, uh, it is pretty straightforward which classes you take. You don't have many options. Um, not to say that our classes that we have aren't awesome, uh, because every class that I've taken here, with perhaps one exception, um, have been incredible. They've been really, really good and you know very useful and interesting for me to learn about. Uh, however, with classes, it's like you, you probably want there to be some kind of a choice <laughs> in the classes that you take. Um, and I'm sure at a bigger school like, you know, the University of Michigan, there probably would be more options. Um, but that's just sort of the nature of going to a smaller school like I go to. Um, right. So that's definitely something to keep in mind when you're sort of considering where to apply uh, and, and then, you know, where to accept. But basically, you need nine credits to be full time. And you need to be full-time in order to be a TA or an RA. So nine credits realistically isn't a lot. That can be basically two classes a semester plus your thesis credits. Um, and then basically very rough timeline in, in that Geology 700, that intro to grad school class. That is where you sort of plan you, what you're going to be doing for your thesis. It basically is a class that makes you not procrastinate put, uh, doing your thesis proposal. <laughs> so you develop that throughout your first semester in graduate school, and then you sort of refine the proposal itself in your second semester with your advisor. You present your thesis proposal, basically being like, hey, here's what I'm planning to do. Here's how I'm planning to do it. Please let me do science. And essentially, you present that and defend it in front of your committee. And they basically, similar to like the, a thesis defense, they say, okay, well, here's some changes that you need to make. Here's some things that you need to think more about. And, you know, go nuts. So in a normal grad school, you know, system of, of two years, you would do some of your research over the summer between your two years. If you need to travel or anything, um, that's when you would do it. Unfortunately, that was not a thing thanks to COVID. So <laughs> yeah, thanks. Um, and then you do your data collection, you know, over the summer, you, you run your experiments or, you know, describe your specimens in my case uh, over the summer and the fall semester of your second year. And then uh, over sort of like the Christmas ish break. And then into the very beginning part of spring semester, you are writing your actual thesis. And, um, which is what you just finished up, correct? Ex exactly. And then shortly after midterms or around, um, I think the deadline to defend your thesis at my school is actually this coming Friday. So you have like two weeks before the end of the semester to actually defend your thesis in front of your committee. And then you, they, they give you some, some edits and stuff to, to fix up what you did. 
um, or, or things that you should go back and maybe, maybe redo or, or, you know, think about a little more resubmit it to your committee. Then they submit it to like the graduate office and bing, bing, boom, you're pretty much done. That's very fast and dirty how the research for masters works, at least in a thesis track. There are many, many, I'd say probably the majority of, you know, maybe not at my school because my school is a, you know, technology and science school, but I'd say the majority of master's programs are not thesis option, like presumably yours was. Yeah. So when I was in grad school, basically there was sort of, if off the top of my head, I might think of more, but kind of three different things that needed to be done. Number one, you needed to, you know, take courses. Um, and for me specifically, again, having not been in education up until the time I got to grad school, it was really an opportunity to just learn what teaching is. You know, we've mm -hmm. all, we've all interacted with teachers and it's really easy to see kind of what goes on on the surface. And we've all had good and bad teachers. Um, and we can, you know, think we might know what's going on and to, to a certain extent, you know, that's definitely helpful, but you take classes to learn about kind of all the behind the scenes stuff and all the different, you know, acronyms that get used and, yeah. you know, in kind of all that. And, you know, don't get me wrong. There's a lot that they don't teach you in grad school about that, but it is definitely useful to have those courses that are there to, you know, to try and get you up to speed just with some of the technical language of the, you know, of the profession, which then leads you into number two. This isn't um, quite a thesis, but there is at least in New York state and, you know, a number of states around the country use this test. Um, but there's sort of a, um, it's not a sit down kind of test, but it's more of a portfolio kind of thing is the best mm -hmm. way I can describe it. Okay. It's called the EdTPA where you right. need to, um, basically it's in three parts. Part one is you need to basically like plan a lesson and say, here's what I plan on doing. Part two involves you actually recording that lesson and in front of students like teaching it live. And then part three is kind of reflecting on that lesson is sort of the best, uh, at least as my recollection goes. Um, it is an absolute bear. It is not a whole lot of fun. It, um, you know, kind of once again, falling into similar to the GRE, I don't think it's a great measure of, you know, whether or not people will be good teachers, but mm -hmm. it is something that you basically need to pass in order to become a teacher, at least again, in New York state. And so you really need to make sure, you know, those, you're going to feel definitely out of place in your first regular classes, just because you don't know what's going on. Um, at least, especially if you're doing what I did again, coming from a non-education background, but all of those classes and learning all that, as well as your professors that know you're in that boat and kind of know what's going on. Um, you know, all of that will help you prepare your ed TPA which you'll then, you know, go about recording and, you know, actually, you know, putting into practice while you are student teaching, which is the third one. And this is kind of the, uh, you know, the sexiest one, <laughs> if you want to call it that, because it's where you actually get to go and put everything into practice. And you get to right. say, okay, you know, I've learned X, Y, and Z, you know, can I get up in front of a group of students? And even though I'm going to make a thousand mistakes, and even though, you know, I might not exactly know what it is that's going on, you know, can I get up in front of a group of students and actually teach. Um, mm -hmm. And that is where, you know, when most people talk about their grad school from their, you know, from an education point of view, that's what most people are going to remember is, you know, how their student teaching went, what kind of cooperating teacher they had. So you are taking over somebody else's classroom and you basically have to, you know, live under the rules of whatever teachers, you know, class that actually is, how do they want grades done? Do they want to see your lesson plans ahead of time? Are they just going to, you know, like take off into the teacher's room for two, or two months and, you know, just you're on your own? Um, you know, there's any number of ways that can go, but it's also you know, definitely the most rewarding. And it tells you kind of the most about you know, your future. If, if that doesn't go well, it's not to say that, you know, things are dead for you because people can obviously improve. But if you know, there are certain aspects of teaching that you just aren't going to get in a classroom and you can only really work on, or pardon me, you're not going to get, you know, when I say in the classroom, I mean, you know, learning about it. Um, there are certain things you're only able to do, you know, teaching in front of actual students. And so kind of, well, you know, while I was in grad school in my program, those were the three big things was taking classes just to you know, get myself up to speed on, you know, what is a teacher and what do I really need to know in order to go into this field, getting my ed TPA ready, and making sure because that is, you know, that really is a bear and it's not fun. And then, you know, actually student teaching and making sure 
that, you know, I can walk into a classroom and I can, you know, I can teach things to students as well as, you know, interact with them on a more human level. Those were really the three big parts to my grad school program that, you know, I had to go through. And then, of course, there's always the, you know, hanging out with your friends that are going through the same thing, that are in mm -hmm. the same boat as you, um, yep. which is, you know, an important part of just being able to make it through grad school. Absolutely. And, you know, if, if my office mates haven't been or, you know, weren't pretty cool people, uh, my master's would have been significantly harder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, and then just to just sort of give like a third sort of example, and this is only very, you know, loose, just what I've been told by uh, some of those friends who are doing speech language pathology. Basically, they are doing like just classes. And from what I can tell, uh, taking significantly more classes than me. Because <laughs> like, how many classes did you take a semester? And like, where you going? you were going like full time, right? Yeah, so it was, oh, goodness. Um, I feel like it was three, three in person classes, plus one or two online classes at a time when I was just um, taking classes, and then mm -hmm. student teaching was its own thing. So right. I had one semester that was just straight up, I was student teaching in two different places for uh, one, um, for one semester. A part of actually, I forgot about this. So before you student teach, you've got to go do what are called practicum hours, um, which is mm -hmm. basically just you show up to a class and you're supposed to just observe um, and see what's going on. You're not actually teaching or planning lessons. Um, you know, most of the time you can wind up saying, Hey, you know, I'll teach this lesson. Let's see if, you know, see if this works. And assuming you and that teacher have a good relationship, oftentimes you'll wind up student teaching there. But yeah, it was kind of like three classes in person for me doing observations and taking one online class, which is what I had for that. And then, you know, student teaching was its own thing. Gotcha. Uh, but yeah, so they from what I could tell in, you know, this is, again, this is just what I've been told about this, like one specific program. So again, I'm sure this could vary, but uh, they take like in, in speech language pathology in your first year, you take like at least as many credits and, and classes as you did in undergrad, if not more. And then your second year you do like clinical stuff. So you basically do speech language pathology with a supervisor so it's like you can't do it like un unsupervised essentially basically Jeez. similar to like student teaching almost um but they see like actual clients and, and things like that and mm -hmm. uh which is probably why they you know really front load the schedule with a lot of classes your first year so that's what that seems like to me and I, to my knowledge, they also don't get paid for doing that clinical stuff. This is for um, uh, speech language pathology? Yes. And the reason why yeah. I, I, you know, talk about that one specifically is because I have several friends that I went to undergrad with uh, who are who are doing that. Um, and actually, I also have a friend who uh, is in grad school right now for chiropractory. Really? And she is at a school that is much more science-based than a lot of other chiropractory schools. Um, mm -hmm. but yeah, so she is also taking, you know, many classes. Her school is weird in that they have quarters instead of semesters. Um, and I think like two weeks between each quarter or something like that. So very, very packed schedule, but taking, you know, many classes and clinical stuff, you know, throughout the, the year or the, the two years that she's there. Um, but yeah, so depending on what you do, grad school can be, it can vary so wildly. Uh, and I'm oh, of course very lucky that I'm in a position where I get paid. <laughs> so, uh, one of the benefits, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, presumably you are interested in some form in science. Uh, so if you end up going to grad school, far. yeah, if you, if you're interested in going to grad school for science, y you picked the right field in my opinion. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, and also a bonus, is that for me, so you, you've said that, you know, even though you didn't go for education in order to teach high school and middle school, you need to go get a master's in education. 
yes, at some point you will need to get a mask. If you're going to be teaching, at least in a public school um, right. in New York State, you are going to need to get a master's degree. And I believe that's the case in many other states across the country. Yeah, I believe so too. Um, but for me to be able to teach college, I do not. <laughs> I, can, really? I can just go, I could get hired tomorrow to go teach, you know, because I have a master's, they'd probably let me do sort of like entry level classes. Um, I was going to say, like, how likely is it that you would actually um, you know, get hired to teach at that point? You'd be surprised. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. So I had, let's see, at, at my community college that I went to, um, he wasn't my teacher because I was like a science major, but he taught several uh, like biology classes, uh, mostly for like non biology majors mostly to get like their science you know elective or whatever out of the way so many people who teach like the the non-science majors version of a science class generally you know i shouldn't say generally but much more frequently you will find them that they only have masters instead of phds uh also that is is surprising i would not mm -hmm. guess that also um even at my four-year school in my final semester. So this was, you know, I was getting a bachelor's degree and finishing a bachelor's degree. My genetics lab teacher, I, off the top of my head, I don't even know if he had a master's. I would assume that he, I would assume that he did. He did have lots of like industry experience. He worked at a, like a, um, like biopharmaceutical company for several years. So like he had previous, uh, you know, like lab experimental experience. So that obviously probably bolstered his resume when he applied a fair bit. Uh, but yeah, so he definitely didn't have a PhD may not have had a master's, although I would assume that he did. Um, I mean, good for, you know, you know, good for whoever hired him, not just saying that, you know, grad school had to be the be all and all mm-hmm. being a doctorate was the be all and all because like, you know, I don't want to say it's worth nothing, but you know, there's especially, you know, in the sciences, I would assume like there's a lot more out there than to, you know, just having that piece of paper. Yeah, exactly. And a, a really, just really quickly, a, a piece of, or like a subsection of paleontology that uh, I had sort of known existed, but didn't ever think about until a class I'm taking this semester. Um, Mm -hmm. So basically anytime that something is built on federal lands, they need to do sort of like a survey uh, to see if there is stuff there that might not want to be destroyed by construction. Typically, Mm -hmm. um, you know, in the Northeast, it's mostly things, well, there's not really much federal land in the Northeast, but when mm-hmm. they do do stuff on what limited federal land there is, they typically are looking for archaeological things, you know, human associated things. But, you know, out in the West, you know, if you're doing things on, uh, you know, the, the Bureau of Land Management land, then you probably need a paleontological monitor there. Somebody that's just sort of checking all of, you know, you have a big excavator, dig out a hole. A paleontologist comes in, looks at it. Is there fossils there? If no, cool. You can keep going. If not, they sort of stop stuff for like an hour. Maybe the construction crew or whoever will go take lunch. They'll figure out, okay, is this something major? Is this something that we need to take out? Is this, you know, they'll report it no matter what it is pretty much. But whether it's, you know, something worth stopping the entire construction for a couple days to, to work on, um, they sort of determine that. And while the person overseeing all of that stuff generally does have a PhD, uh, a lot of like the actual workers and monitors might only have like a bachelor's. I mean, it's definitely, it's surprising, but also kind of heartening to hear that, that it's just not, it is less of a requirement than you would think. And, you know, I don't know if there's going to be a moral to this podcast or not, but just, you know, there is not like a linear path to get where you're going in some cases, you know, in some cases, you know, it is a, you know, if you want to teach in public schools in New York state, you need a master's degree at some point, Mm -hmm. but you know, with lots of different jobs and this being a primarily science podcast, you can kind of take a bunch of different paths to get where you want to go. As long as you know what you're doing or what you think you want to do, Mm -hmm. you know, there's probably a way to make that happen in, you know, eight out of 10 cases. 
Yeah, I would say that's definitely true. Like that's that's a really, I, and I also think that's pretty fair. You know, eight out of ten. Obviously, if you want to teach, you know, full time and do research at you know a, a, a even like a relatively small, you know, even like a relatively small state school, uh, you'll probably need a PhD. That's that's just the way it is. But if you want to teach at a relatively small college, you might only need a master's. So, um, yeah. So that's that's sort of grad school in a nutshell. A kind of rambly grad school in a nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is. Uh, you know, I think this was a a fun episode just for both of us to kind of learn a little bit more about you know how the other one got to where they were, uh, and hopefully it was useful to anybody out there that's thinking about going to grad school. So this has been the um, the congratulations, Gavin. You have a master's degree, or you will have one soon, I guess. Uh, yeah, with, with an asterisk there. Yeah. Well, I'll put that in there. You know, the, Gavin, you have a master's degree episode of uh, I Wish You Were Dead, a podcast about things that used to be alive. Gavin, congratulations, buddy, and I'll uh, I'll talk to you next week. Absolutely. See you then. This episode of I Wish You Were Dead was written by Gavin Davidson and hosted by Gavin Davidson, Mike Bryson, and Fanella Campanino. It was sound edited by Mike Bryson and edited for YouTube by Gavin Davidson. Special thanks to former guests of the pod and to listeners like you. 